Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. A St. Louis video game studio's latest release is getting solid reviews for great play, as well as praise for its connection to the past. St. Louis on the Air producer Danny Wisentowski has that story. In the world of video games, it was a titan. Its players experienced things they'd never seen before on a screen at home. The graphics were the very bleeding edge of its time, turning ones and zeros into moving worlds. That year, the 2600 released to a public that was still learning what a video game even was. Its games were sold in a cartridge, block-shaped slabs of plastic that would become the standard and a beloved format for decades to come, and it was on those Atari cartridges that gamers first got to know Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, and a couple of turtle-stomping plumbers named Mario and Luigi. Almost 50 years since its release, the Atari 2600 is something of a relic. But now, for the first time since 1990, it is getting a brand new release on a cartridge. That game is called Mr. Run and Jump, and it owes its existence to a St. Louis game studio. And here to talk about Mr. Run and Jump and how one goes about building a modern video game based on an old console, we welcome that game's creator and a game developer at Graphite Labs, John McCullough. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Danny. Thanks for having me. John, first of all, congratulations on releasing this game. It just came out on July 25th. You have been working on this for years. How are you feeling just, you know, basking in the first reactions to this getting out in the world? You know, it's it's been wonderful. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. Uh, you know, the earliest incarnations of Mr. Run and Jump started around like 2015. So, wow. you know, all, approaching 10 years of, you know, this thing kicking around on my hard drive. And yeah, I, I never thought it would evolve into something so, so big and, and, and so, you know, cool and fancy. So this game, Mr. Run and Jump, you know, it has this bright, poppy, neon-soaked look. Give us a bit of a description of the look and feel of this game and, and what players are being asked to do in it. Yeah, I mean, Mr. Run and Jump is really a game that does what it says on the tin, right? Uh, the player, uh, you take the role of the titular Mr. Run and Jump, uh, and this is kind of an an abstract uh, personification of all things acrobatics, right? He's a, a little character who likes to, you know, run and jump. He lives in this kind of abstract land known as the realm, uh, excuse me, the realms of color. And he has a dog named Leap. And Leap, you know, one day runs off as he does. You know, Mr. Run and Jump is is actually two games, right? Like, so there's the, there's the classic version, uh, as you were describing on the Atari 2600. Um, and then there's the modern, the Neo version that we, that we call it. Yeah. Now let's just, you know, to pause there, because this is, this is so interesting. These two versions of the games, the modern one, as you've referenced, has come out for the PlayStation, the Xbox, Nintendo, and it kind of feels like a, a remaster or a remake, but of a game that has never existed before that is also now being released at the same time. And that is the the one that you programmed for the Atari 2600 on that original hardware. Mm-hmm. And so these are these are two separate 
games. They're two separate games, yeah. Yeah, we think of the new one as almost kind of like a pseudo-sequel uh, to the classic version, where the classic... Uh, well, the, the new version actually opens up with kind of a facsimile of the classic one. You see, like, those... We did our best to kind of recreate the classic look as closely as we could, and then in the opening level, in the opening sequence, Mr. Run and Jump notices a tear in the fabric of reality that then splits open, you know, the universe and becomes transformed into kind of the neon-soak look that you described earlier. Yeah, and that that original game, that is one that you were building, I think it was around 2021, and that, you know, that game is fully within the original Atari 2600. It has those kind of very flat colors, the kind of stripes, um, you know, you're not going to see any curved lines, really, um, unless, you know, maybe you have a, a an original screen. But, you know, how do you even go about making this game? Um, you know, I mean, what did you start with? Did it start with the Atari 2600 or was this a modern game that you were, you know, working on already? No, I mean, it started as a 2600 game. Um, you know, really the origins kind of come from me, you know, back, like I say, around 2015, uh, I was playing a lot of, well, I was playing a lot of cartridge games. I was playing a lot of old Nintendo games, uh, for like the original, the NES, the original Nintendo system. And I was at the time, you know, because I was born in like 93. I grew up with a PlayStation 1, right? So uh, I was kind of uh, at the time obsessed with going through the classics, right? You know, I'll say classics with these air quotes, but uh, it was like I'm uh, thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, I never finished Mario Brothers or I never played the original Zelda. And so I was on this kind of collection spree, you know, I was, you know, going out, buying all these cartridges, you know, playing them on the old TV and, you know, just boning up on on, on these original, you know, cartridge experiences. Uh, and I forget exactly where I heard about it the first time, but I, I knew it was a thing where people would kind of keep these old consoles alive, make new games for them, you know, on that original hardware and since I was playing so much Nintendo, I was like, I wonder what it would be like or what kind of games I could make for this old platform. But uh, it was pointed out to me, you know, there was forum chatter or whatever of, of people going like, oh, you know, if you want a real challenge, you should try making an Atari 2600 game. At the time, I was really looking for that challenge. I was, you know, quite a bit younger and and dumber, and I had a ton of time on my hands. So I'm like, I think I'll look into this. And my plan ultimately was like, I was like, okay, I'll I'll poke around on the 2600 for like a couple months and try to make something kind of real simple and straightforward just to kind of say that I've done it. And then, uh, you know, from there I can get to Nintendo, you know, which is kind of what I really wanted to do at the time. And then, you know, maybe after that, go to like the Super Nintendo or the Genesis or and maybe eventually get to PlayStation. And I had this whole big plan of like, you know, I can make a, a, a homebrew game for, you know, every console, you know, up until a certain point. And, you know, that plan hasn't really come to fruition, right? Like I've just been kind of stuck on the 2600. Yeah, you got you know, on your step one of that ambitious plan. Yeah. Um, talk to a bit about that system and what made it difficult to program for. What what makes those games for the Atari 2600 distinctive in, in a way that has, you know, clearly, I think, held on with a lot of fans and even people who, like yourself, you weren't even, you were not alive when this console first came out. You experienced it later on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and in terms of like what makes it hard to make a 2600 game, like well, the, the big thing about it is it is 
tied in really, really closely to how old TVs worked. Old TVs, um, you know, back in the 70s and the 80s, uh, were kind of these big, fat boxes. Uh, and they had in them these laser guns that are responsible for drawing the screen. And, and these laser guns are called the cathode ray tube or the CRT, which is why these are called CRT TVs. Um, and so the CRT works by, it, it shines this little like pinpoint of light from the inside of the TV onto the screen. And it scans the whole screen almost kind of like it's reading a book. You know, it starts at the top left corner. It shines it really fast, like oscillates the color that's being shown. And so as it scans from like the top left to the top right, you know, it, it draws one, you know, scan line of color, we call it. And then it drops down, goes back over, and then draws the next scan line. And then it does that for the whole length of the screen. Um, so... While the ray tube is drawing the screen, the console has to actually modulate the color that it's shining at kind of these like lightning fast speeds, right? Because it's drawing, you know, 60 frames a second, right? So, so this, this means like the console kind of has to like keep these timers in place and kind of synchronize the game code that's running through the processor with the TV that is constantly drawing the screen. Uh, so it means like if you want to draw like, you know, hey, the sky is blue, you know, I, I can say, okay, Atari 2600 here, here's this blue color. You're going to shine the CRT for this many scan lines. And then once we kind of wait for that process to end, it's like, okay, now we've reached the horizon. We want to draw the ground and it's going to be green. So I'm going to wait for that and then Right before it needs to start shining green, we're going to make that rapid switch and, you know, okay, now, now you're going to shine this green color. We're talking to St. Louis game developer John McCullough about his brand new video game, Mr. Run and Jump, which is getting a unique reception for its release on both modern consoles and, for the first time since 1990, on a cartridge for the Atari 2600. So, t- so I, I appreciate that you know taking us a bit inside that technical level. Um, but tell me, you know, there was there must have been a point where building this game for the twenty six hundred as a passion project, as a homebrew project, and some point, actual Atari becomes involved, and they say, not only do we love this game, we're going to release this on a cartridge for the first time since, you know, before you were born. How how did that connection happen? Yeah, so uh, I work for a company called Graphite Lab in St. Louis here. Um, And we, you know, at the time, well, way back we were doing a lot of uh, mobile games, you know, a lot of stuff for iPhone and Android. That's where we kind of first got connected to Atari. And then, you know, years after that, we got in touch with them again. Um, One of our other employees at Graphite Lab who wound up being lead art on Mr. Run and Jump is... uh, uh, my my buddy uh, Phil Snowbarger, who kind of cooked up this uh, kind of a quick prototype for a game called Combinera, which is like a platformy kind of puzzle game, and we showed that to Atari, and they really liked it. Um, so we kind of you know that's how we kind of reestablished our our relationship to Atari. And in the process of making Combinera, you know I, I saw what we were doing with that game, and I saw. You know, Mr. Run and Jump was kind of this thing, this side project I had cooking in the background. And I'm like, hey, what if we, you know, maybe there's an avenue forward. Like maybe we can take, you know, this side project I have and, 
use Common Era as kind of a reference point and and use that to kind of bridge this gap and introduce Atari to Mr. Run and Jump. And th- they were thrilled with it. You know, they they love that connection to their old console. And we came up with this whole pitch of, you know, hey, we, we got this classic game. We want to, you know, take this as inspiration and make you a modern version as well. And they were excited about that too, so... And what what was it about this game that said you know you know the cartridge aspect of this is the one that really blows my mind because you know Atari is still releasing a lot of games but you know you're downloading them perhaps to your modern consoles or they're released kind of on other home systems but none of them have been released on an actual plastic blocky cartridge um, the kind that a lot of folks grew up with how how did that come together you know Atari they have. They've been releasing other games on cartridge, but it's stuff like, uh, I want to say like Saboteur 2 is like, here's a game that was made back like in the 80s, but it never got released. Uh, so th- that's kind of the unique thing about Mr. Run and Jump. It's the first like new game to be sold and, and produced on these cartridges. And talk talk to me about about the name, um, Mr. Run and Jump. Where, where did that come from, and, and and the character that you've created for this? Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, the character existed before the name. I didn't really have a concept of what the character was when I set out to make the game. I I kind of came to that, and um, because the resolution, if you will, of the 2600 is so coarse, you know, it's not like you can like put in a lot of fine detail into it. So I was just kind of scribbling pixels around and I kind of came up with the shape that I like, you know, I kind of the blobby form with the big snouts, you know, people, you know, you'll have to look up what the character looks like. Yeah, he is very blobby and he has a big (laughs) snout. I can affirm this. (laughs) But uh, so... So I had this, and I I thought about doing for a while. I'm like, oh, maybe, you know, the old thing with, like, Atari games where you'd see the box art and it'd be this really nicely rendered, illustrated, like, you know, thing about, like, Yar's Revenge. It's like, oh, here's this, like, mosquito cyborg, and he's fighting, like, this, you know, hyper-advanced starship. And then you put the game in, and it's like, oh, here's, like, a, here's, like, a red... Yeah square fighting it's, this it's Lego squad. blocks you know <laughs> shot from the side I mean there's no you know everything is in <laughs> different uh, rec- kinds of rectangles stacked on each other exactly so I thought for a while I'm like so this was interesting I had the rectangles before I had you know the the hyper illustrated you know nice version and I was kind of thinking like oh like what could this be I like how this looks in game but you know what is it and I thought for a while, I'm like, oh, maybe he's like a spaceman. Maybe the snout is like his helmet or, and he's on the moon and maybe that's why he can jump real high. But I think ultimately I really liked it as just kind of this abstract character. I like that he's kind of this personification of all things running and jumping. Um, and, and I like, you know, the, the, the idea that the name fits, you know, it almost sounds like an original release on the 2600. I, I pulled up some of the names of the, the first games that were released, and they are pretty basic. There's Air Sea Battle. There's just combat. There's one called Math. Just just math, um, and there's starship, um, and I and so does this harken back to a time where it wasn't just simpler, but we didn't even know terms like platformer, as you mentioned, or puzzler. These sort of described genres; those those did not exist. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I, you know, there's there's part of me that kind of imagines this fantasy that is like 
uh, yeah, like, oh, d- you know, we know Mario is kind of the the progenitor of like what it means to be a, a platformer game, right? And but I'm like, what if like Mr. Run and Jump is kind of this alternate history where it's like, ooh, did you know that actually before Mario there was Mr. Run and Jump that actually is where like a lot of, uh, you know, uh, of these modern platforming conventions came from. So that I, I kind of imagined him as, yeah, like this pseudo prototype for the platforming genre as a whole. And, and yeah, the name kind of lends itself to that. You know, I, I think calling the game Mr. Something is kind of a very old video games thing to do. You know, you can think of like Pac-Man or there's like Mr. Driller or Mr. Domino or Mr. Do, like kind of things like that, you know, naming the game after the character, you know, Mr. Blank. Uh, so It was a very 70s kind of construction. Yeah, totally. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of follow. I thought it was cute and charming to kind of follow that convention. So I've I've looked over some of the, the recent reviews. And, you know, this this game has just, just come out, but there are some folks who've already had copies of it, who've had gotten a chance to play it. And a lot of them really like it. Mm-hmm. And they also note it is very hard. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, they call it a precision 2D platformer, which is another one of those genre words that is actually more recent. But, you know, uh, this neon-drenched platformer made me absolutely miserable. This was a positive review <laughs> from <laughs> a fan of this. And I, I guess it speaks to the way that, that video game players like a challenge and they like this particular kind of game where you have to hit the button exactly right and you made you know you are expected to restart over and over and over again um, it angered me to death but I kept playing it another reviewer wrote um, and that it motivated them to get better each time um, it's just fun another reviewer just said and that's you know kind of the core of what makes a game a game what is it what does it feel like to kind of start seeing these reviews and thinking about people who are playing this creation that you've worked so long on? You know, uh, it's it's nice. I mean, it's it's great to see people come away from it with a positive feeling. Uh, I it, it's tricky because, like, I I feel like we didn't quite set out to make a game so hard. You know, it, <laughs> but it, that that really is a product of using the classic game. You know, we're, we're talking about reviews for the modern version of Mister Run and Jump. Yes. Uh, the, you know, the but the classic version is pretty hard too. And, and the thing is, like, you know, it's. It's you move the character, and if you touch an enemy, you die and have to restart the level over again. We kind of use a lot of these conventions. We brought them forward, and you know where modern games would give you more health or more lives or you know things like that. And we found it was just kind of antithetical to what that classic experience was to you know do some of that stuff. You know, we wanted to keep kind of that that pure classic feeling. Uh, but it turns out a lot of those elements do make it a really challenging experience. So, um, you know, at, at some point when we kind of discovered what this game was in development, we leaned into that a little bit and be like, okay, like there are modern parallels to these ideas. You know, there is like Super Meat Boy or Celeste, you know, the uh, genre luminaries of the precision platformer. And so it's like we, we can use these games as kind of a modern touch point and kind of build off from there. I'm curious, the the challenge you set for yourself in building this game, it seems like you, you really piled it on because you created a game where people have expectations. They have a certain nostalgia for the way these games played. 
Those games were limited by their technology. They couldn't give people very much help. They couldn't give them very many, you know, retries, things that we're maybe now used to. Is it difficult to kind of not just combine a modern and old video game, but to kind of wrestle with the fact that part of what we liked about these old video games was they didn't have enough resources. They couldn't be <laughs> easy for us. They couldn't give us lives. And we had to work against that. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely something to the challenge of it, right? It, I mean, it. you know, this is kind of, you know, the 2600 era is kind of where I think that that modern idea or that stereotype comes in of like, you know, the 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 you know I'm I'm glued to the screen. My palms are sweaty. Like I'm just fixated on you know this this hyper challenging experience. It, it's interesting. I, I think the classic Mr. Run and Jump kind of tried to look at modern games and take some of those lessons that we've learned in the past you know 45 years or whatever it's been and apply those to the old technology. But then the modern game kind of looks back and it looks at the at the classic game and kind of looks at what makes those games fun and tries to take that forward. When you play this game, does it feel different as the creator? Can you get into it or are you just looking for bugs at this point? No, I I love this game. I I love playing it. I I think you know you have something good where like you'll spend 80 hours, you know, crunching and, and developing this thing and working real hard on it. But at the end of the week, you're still like, Man, you know what? I could, I could go. I could, I could play a level right now. Like that sounds really good. Um, what is there anything on the horizon for your next big project? Uh, you know, we we don't have anything announced, but we do definitely have a couple projects in the work. And then, yeah, we're we're hoping to get some more exciting stuff off the ground with Atari uh, that hopefully at some point we'll be able to talk about. John Makula is a St. Louis game developer for Graphite Labs. His new game, Mr. Run and Jump, released on July 25th for PlayStation, Xbox, Nintendo, and PC, and Cartridge. John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me. This episode was produced by Danny Wissentowski with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.